over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. It's my thrill to have Dr. George Guthrie back on the podcast. He is professor of New Testament at Regent College. I'm not going to read his whole Vita CV bio because we would lose our interview time, but he has a PhD and MDiv from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and a THM from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Did they change their name to university now? I think the college side is university ah. and Ted's is still the grad school Got for, for the whole thing, yeah. Dr. Guthrie, henceforth George, has written many commentaries on Hebrews, James, Second Corinthians, as well as articles and contributions to various periodicals, consulted on the ESV, the CSV, NLT, and the HCSB, hereforth now known as the CSB. Any event, George, thanks for jumping back on the podcast. We appreciate your time. Oh, it's great to be with you guys again. Thanks for having me. You bet. You know, that's a big compliment to be invited back anywhere, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sometimes when I come back into a class and the students are actually there, I say, boy, I'm glad you came back. It would not look good if you just didn't come. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you can always dissuade yourself. They paid to be there, right? I love it. All right, let's jump into this incredibly complex, wonderful, Christological masterpiece called The Letter to the Hebrews. I'm going to ask you about the author because I mentioned that's a bit of a fool's errand to discuss because we just don't know. So let's start, as I like to do, with you smart guys, you experts in the field. Give me the 25, 50-word overview of how you look at Hebrews, George. Yeah. Here's kind of the central idea of Hebrews from my perspective, and that is that your perseverance in the Christian life will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. So let me say that again, that your perseverance in the Christian life or Christian faith will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Now, let me just clarify. No, that's good. That'll right. preach. I like this. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not just cognitive. It's not just, well, if you can fill in the right blanks with the theological answers, then you're okay. This is relational, but it's interesting that the author is addressing a moment for these people. I think that probably Hebrews was written to the city of Rome at a time when persecution was on the rise. They had not experienced martyrdom yet. Uh, If you look at the beginning of chapter 12, he says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. But persecution is on the rise. They're feeling the heat of opposition from the culture. If, as various scholars think, that this was written sometime in the early to mid-60s, 
then this is probably just prior to the onslaught of Nero's very intense persecution yes. in the mid-60s, where some of these people who are being written to would eventually end up on crosses, uh, lighting Nero's gardens, mm-hmm. you know, having mm-hmm. tar spread over their body and being lit. But that's not, we're not there yet. So you have people who are defecting from the church, who are leaving the church because of the in- intensity of persecution that is beginning to take place. And what the author does to help them with enduring and persevering is to lay a foundation theologically. I mean, he points them to the scriptures and the Christ event, to the, you know, the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus as giving a super solid foundation upon which to build your life and faith. So ultimate implications would be that if we start getting fuzzy in terms of who Jesus is or in terms of the gospel, it's going to be very hard for us to hang in there in the Christian faith. And so what Hebrews is doing is building the case for why we should hang in there and the beautiful promises that surround enduring all the way to the end. One of the overarching themes that the author does so eloquently is the superiority of Christ. And of course, and I would love you to expand on this a little bit, some of the background context of angelology in that time or angelic intermediaries or something of that effect that people were you know, having affinity or interest in. And so when he begins in chapter one with this marvelous introduction, I love the first yeah. four verses of this. Let me go ahead and read it. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. I love that. And these last days have spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he, referencing Christ, is the radiance of his glory and the exact caricature, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down, which he'll expand in great detail in chapters 9 and 10, at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. I was talking to another guest recently about the Bible is literature is mind boggling to me. If you just set aside the religious nature of the book or inspiration, just the way these people wrote is otherworldly. Yeah. Let me say a couple of words about that. And then we'll go back to the greater than motif or theme that you were talking about just a minute ago in the ancient world, when you were starting a speech or starting an eloquent piece of writing, which one of the things that you wanted to do was to kind of give a summary of the topics that you were going to be covering. And of course, that does that, this introduction to Hebrews does. But the other thing you were supposed to do was to grab people's attention. And there's so much built into this first movement, these first verses mm-hmm. have alliteration right off the bat. Uh, in Greek, it starts palumeros, kai palutropos, palai. So he's using alliteration. You can hear the pup, 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 pup yes. sound in that. And he just grabs your attention. He parallels the age before the coming of Messiah, that time's past, with these last days, which is kind of a catchphrase that means the time after the coming of Messiah. So the last days didn't necessarily mean that the author thought, you know, that Jesus was just about to come back 
although there was that anticipation in the early church. But technically, in Jewish theology, the last days were initiated with the coming of Messiah. So the last days were everything from the time that Messiah comes to the end of the age. So the author parallels the revelation of the past times with the revelation preeminently in the Son in these last days. And then he goes on to give seven key characteristics of the Son. Uh, If you think about it, he talks about him inheriting all things at the end of the age. That's an allusion to Psalm 2. He talks about he was the creator of the world. That goes back to the beginning of the creation. So he's the creator of the world. He's also the sustainer of history. So he's the one who started off in the beginning. He'll wrap it up in the end. He's sustaining things now. And you start to get this amazing picture of who we're talking about here. And he also reflects the nature of God himself. So that word character that you were alluding to could be used of a stamp in the ancient world or a seal that made an imprint. Originally, it was used of the thing that made the imprint and then ultimately of the imprint itself. So when he says that he is the exact representation of the father's nature, you know, that kind of idea, the way I like to think about it is if you think about a father-son relationship, if I could flash on a screen a picture of me and my son, you see the image of the father stamped on the face of the son. Mm-hmm. It communicates a closeness and an intimacy of the relationship. And so when he talks about Christ being the, the radiance of the glory or the exact representation of the nature of the father, he's talking about the uniqueness of the identity of the son with the father. And then he comes and he culminates it with him making purification for sins, which, of course, is going to be a huge part of what Hebrews is doing in the center section. And then the sitting down at the right hand is an allusion to Psalm 110.1, which is really important in the book. It's quoted once and alluded to four other times, really at key turning points in the structure of the book, that Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father, and he finishes this off in verse 4 with this reference to the angels. And the idea of him being greater than the angels is not speaking about Jesus in his being at some point was less than the angels. He's speaking spatially. So in the incarnation, Jesus came down to the level of human beings, which the author, and from a Jewish theology standpoint, is below the angels who are more around the throne of God and in the presence of God. But then he is exalted above the angels. So it's to the preeminent position in the universe that he is exalted. He is on the throne of the whole universe. And that gives kind of a grounding or an orientation for the book that's going to be really, really important. And that, of course, also, as you mentioned, launches the greater than theme or motif. And we can talk a bit more about that if you'd like to. Yes. In verse 5, then, I love this interjection. Which of the angels did he ever say? and you've already said this better than I'm going to, but you're my son. I'll be a father to him. He is son to me. And I love verse six and let all the angels of God worship him. Yeah. So right away, he's putting that demarcation out there. Look, this is a biblical theological construct. This isn't new. Yeah. And when I step way back on this, when I was trying to encourage our church, George, I said, you know, we need to reframe who this Jesus is in our forget this visualization nonsense about, you know, Jesus, you need to see him as scripture is teaching about him. There's no one greater 
yeah who's ever existed who will exist who will exist in the future he is preeminent he's sovereign he's above all and it should give you chills to some degree to read chapter one absolutely yeah when i'm teaching on this in the church one of the images i use i actually use an illustration that robert jastro you know who was with now used to show the massive vastness of space and I won't go into that here, but basically he draws an analogy with the sun being an orange and the earth being a grain of sand that's 30 feet away. And he kind of plays that out. And so that the nearest star is about 2000 miles away on that scale, you know, (laughs) on that scale of the sun being an orange and the earth being a grain of sand 30 feet away. And then he plays that out and says that on that scale, the universe is something like 20 million light years across or whatever. And you start getting the sense of the vastness and you say, well, and what Hebrews is saying is Jesus is the one who spoke and all of that came into existence. He is the one who created all of that. So so let me tie that into what is actually going on with the angels here in chapter and, and one. Let me inject. I want to hear this, but I, I go yeah. back to Colossians often too, George, because Colossians, we have Paul's explanation Christ was the creation. Christ is the one who did these things. Yeah, yeah. And he does that, again, this is uh, reflected here in this string of text. What we have in 1, 5 through 14 is actually what the rabbis would call a string of pearls. It was the stringing together of Old Testament text to make a point. And the reason it was used like this was so that by the time you got to the end of that string— as you do in getting to the end of chapter one, everybody in the room is shaking their head and saying, okay, yes, I see it. I see, you know, and the point here is that Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the angels in terms of his relationship with the father, the nature of his relationship with father, one, five. He's greater than the angels because they have an inferior position. They're ministers that are sent out on behalf of the people of God, and they worship Jesus. So they're clearly inferior to him. And then he comes down in 1, 8 through 12 by saying that he is the one who sits enthroned over the universe, and he was the creator of the universe. And not only that, he's the one who's going to be the terminator Mm -hmm. of the whole universe. He's the one who's going to wrap it all up like an old cloak and pack it away at the end of time. And then he climaxes with Psalm 110.1 that he then sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so you have this whole string here comparing him to the angels. But the question is, why? Why is the author doing that? Well, I don't actually think that it's because there was some form of angelolatry that they were dealing with. That's been held by a few commentators. But I think now most would see that what is going on here is a bit of brilliant rabbinic argumentation, kind of the rabbis, the way they would make an argument. This argument is actually playing off of the kind of esteemed place that the angels held in Jewish theology, which was an appropriate place. So they were in the presence of God. They actually, in some parts of Jewish theology, were seen as the mediators of the law. You know, they were there at Sinai in the lightning and the storm, as God was giving the law. So here's how the argument works leading into chapter two, verses one through four, which is an exhortation. It's what is called an argument from lesser to greater. And so he gets to the end of chapter one and everybody in the room is shaking their head and say, okay, I got it. Jesus is greater than the angel. Got it. And then he turns to chapter two 
uh, what we have as chapter two. And he says, do you remember what happened to those people in the old covenant era who rejected the law of God that was given through the angels? You remember what happened with them? Bad news, devastating kind of punishment. That's the lesser situation. And then he says, how much greater punishment is deserved by those who turn away from the word of salvation given through the superior son? Mm. So what he's doing in chapter one with this comparison with the angels is he's kind of setting them up by playing off of their veneration for the angels and saying, you know, you respect the angels as, you know, the ministers of God. Great. You ought to respect Jesus so, so much more. And then he sets up this exhortation in 2, 1 through 4 by saying, if that is the case, there's no way you should drift away or walk away from the word of salvation given through Jesus, the superior son of God. Because for those who do that, it's going to be absolutely devastating, even much more so than the kind of devastation that you had under the old covenant when people rejected the law. Does that make sense? It makes beautiful sense. And I love the way he ties in one that God spoke long ago through prophets and portions and ways. Now he's spoken in his son. And then to bring where you just referenced in chapter two, verse one, we've heard it. If the word was spoken through angels was unalterable down to verse three, the first spoken through the Lord. So he continues this whole, in this whole argument, or I don't know if you call it argument, but this explanation of God spoke a long time ago. Yeah. In eternity past. Oh, not just in the prophets. Oh, not just in experiences like the miracles of the plagues. Oh, he spoke in his son who's eternally that's existed. Right. Yeah. And I think that's why it is absolutely critical that we really understand the concept of revelation as foundational for us mm-hmm. as believers, mm-hmm. that our faith is based on what God has revealed is true in the world. And we really have to have that as kind of a rock-solid foundation because it calls us to countercultural ways of life. We can't simply give into and be shaped by the voices of the world. We've got to hear that greater voice that gives us a foundation for living differently. And that plays out in 2 verses 3 and 4 because it's not only that Jesus spoke, that that word that was revealed was confirmed to us by the first eyewitnesses, But then he climaxes the whole thing with saying that God himself, in a sense, took the witness stand saying, yes, this gospel is true by signs and wonders and various miracles. So God validated the message of the gospel by the various miracles, you know, that he was doing through the apostles in the world. That became a foundational thing for people to see that God is acting in history and God has spoken in history. Let me ask you, and this is a somewhat big departure sidebar, and I would just still perhaps hopefully accurately what you've just said, the superiority of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ, we have his word in our hand or on our tablets or more likely phones these days. Right. And yet, George, it seems to me, and this may be, I'm getting to be a get off my yard, old guy, but it <laughs> seems to me Christianity in the West has become so experiential. It's how I feel. It's my passion, my vision. It's what it means to me, nomenclature, as opposed to no men and women. Come back to this. T- I mean, look at the argument within young men and women who sexual identity is like boring. Yeah, well, You can be whatever you want to be. What's the big deal? 
And yeah. we've drifted so far from what you just shaped, uh, what the author of the Hebrews just shaped, how you explained it, from the substantial nature of the personal work of Christ that God did not, as Howard yeah. Hendricks used to say, he spoke and he didn't stutter. He right. gave this to us a long time ago, and you've got it in every form in your pocket in 85 different English iterations, if you so want. Yeah, I would say two things to that. One is, well, of course, in one sense, the faith is experiential. I mean, it's personal. It's us having the experience of knowing the living God face-to-face and all of that. But the problem is that when we begin using personal experience as the foundation that's driving everything else in life, rather than the revelation of God, because all of us have experiences that vary. You know, believers through the centuries have gone through what is, you know, often called the dark night of the soul. You uh, have people like Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or whoever who have said they've gone through long periods of darkness, you know, in their walk with Christ at times because the faith is not meant to be dependent on our emotions or our experiences of the moment. So as you mentioned, the, the challenge in the modern context and world is people say that, well, my experience is reality. You know, people talk about their lived experience, and that's important. And it's vital that we tune into people's own life experience and not just kind of categorize them or tag them or stereotype them. But the challenge is philosophically in the West right now, that idea of personal experience has been so elevated that it becomes the norm for everything else. And therefore, if my experience is being weighed over against your experience, there's no basis to decide who's right. In fact, right. it's not a right. It's just whoever, you know, it's what's right for you, you know? So well, then, becomes, yeah. And then we've made God in our own image. And that's my point. I didn't mean yeah. to suggest that we don't experience God in a trusting Christ or right. in a conviction right. of God's spirit. My point was my experience of how I feel and what I choose is more important to the church in the West today in my 47 years of watching this than ever. And I'm going, how can you spend any time in the scripture? Let's just use these first two chapters of Hebrews and go, my goodness, can't you get a little bit better bearing? And I don't want to just, you know, be a grumpy old man, get off my yard. But I also want to acknowledge we've changed. And then you and I have the dutiful obligation imperative to help people see this person Christ for who he is. Yeah. And I'm burdened about this because I, you know, I live in Vancouver, which is profoundly, it's a beautiful city. You know, our ministry and relationship with immigrants, for instance, has been the richest ministry of our lives in some ways for my wife and myself. So there's so many wonderful opportunities and lovely people here, but it's a profoundly secular context. I mean, just amazingly secular. And I have students who come to Regent out of you know, rural bubbles culturally where they, you know, they grew up in a rural situation in a very conservative church and they land in a place like Vancouver and it just blows their mind at points. And they suddenly find themselves having, you know, what is often referred to as cognitive dissonance, you know, where they, they can't make what they understand the Bible to be saying, line up with what they're experiencing, you know, in the culture and part of that is is exactly what you're talking about, that we become oriented to our own experience and feelings rather than being profoundly grounded in the Word of God and what has been revealed. So part of what Hebrews is doing is he's pointing people back to that as the foundation 
of the faith. There's a quote from Dorothy Sayers that I just love. Back in the 50s, she was dealing with people who were saying, you know, let's not worry about theology. Let's not worry about, they called it dogma. Let's not worry about this dogma. Let's just worship. You know, let's just worship Mm -hmm. God and not worry too much about theology. And she said, you know, when you think about Jesus with the woman at the well, he said, you worship, you know not what. Mm. Being under the impression that it was important that someone know what they worship. And she said, the only problem with this undefined and ill-directed worship is the practical difficulty of arousing enthusiasm for the worship of nothing in particular. Wow. And, (laughs) you know, so what Hebrews is doing is saying, you need to go deeper into the scriptures to have an orientation and a profound grounding in what God has revealed is true through the scriptures and through the revelation of the coming of Christ, so that you are grounded as you face persecution and the challenges of the culture around you. I want to jump to the warning passage because in a 40-minute sermon on an overview, I did not have opportunity to dive into them. And frankly, yeah. I don't want to get beat up for my opinions. So I, I just want <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask the expert to walk me through the so-called Hebrews warning passages. We can start in yeah. chapter 4 and let you go from there. Yeah. Actually, let me. I'll give an overview. You have five key warning passages, yes. 1 through 4. You have 6, 4 through 8, 10, you know, down 25 and following, and then at the end of chapter 12. And so you also have other passages that are actually play into this. So chapter 3, verse 6, and chapter 3, verse 14 say about believers and speaking of Jesus, whose house you are if you hold fast, you know. Mm -hmm. Conditional or, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you have a conditional clause there that qualifies the statement which actually that construction, Michael, only occurs about seven times in the New Testament, where you have a statement of fact that is then qualified like that. And it all, every case, it has to do with relationship with God. So, so you have these warning passages. So let me comment on this a couple of different ways to kind of give a framework, and then maybe you can ask further questions to kind of probe. Sure. But first of all, what Hebrews does is kind of like we do in a sermon. You know how, how in a sermon today— you'll do exposition of a passage. Like if you think if I'm preaching on Abraham and I, you know, my first point is, you know, Abraham by faith, Abraham was called out of Ur. And I expound that. I kind of talk about Abraham's story and how he was called to leave his situation. And I expound that. And then maybe I will turn to the congregation and say, now folks, you also are called out of your comfort zone by faith. You know, and so I turn and I exhort the congregation, and then I'll go back to point two and say, not only was Abraham called out, he was called in. So I might expound that for a while, and then again, turn to exhortation and say, now folks, you and I, and I speak in second person, and then maybe first person to challenge us to apply this to our lives. Well, that's what Hebrews is doing. It moves from exposition about Christ to exhortation. And then it goes back to exposition about Christ, and then back to exhortation, okay. and then back to exposition about Christ. So what happens with the warning passages, they're one part of the exhortation. You also have examples like chapter 11. You have uh, promises, but the flip side of the coin of the promises are warnings. 
So what the warnings are doing is they are a form of challenging the congregation and challenging us to think really seriously about our decisions that we need to make in light of the revelation of who Christ is and what he's accomplished for us. So they're evenly spread throughout the book. So that's one thing to realize. The author is, whereas the Christology of the book kind of moves step by step and it's logical and it's moving between heaven and earth, and we could talk about that a bit more, but the exhortation is basically coming back around to the same points over and over again. Here are some positive examples. Here are negative examples. Here are promises. Here are warnings. It's just driving those things home to challenge the listeners or the readers to respond in a certain way. So that's kind of how it fits structurally in the book. And I appreciate I appreciate the framing. Yeah. Let's jump into chapter six, because I think this is one of the more perilous ones, um, yeah. because the grammar is, if you just did an exegetical study of the verbs, it's really hard to get to a theology that makes sense. Yeah. And this is one where you're framing the larger structure of the book helps. Let me read it for our, our folks. Sure. This is chapter six verse four for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the holy spirit and have tasted the good word of god and powers of the age to come and fallen away or then fallen away some english put a suppletion in there it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the son of god and put him to open shame Right. Yeah. I get emails from around the world from people who are really struggling with this yeah. passage because they feel like they have committed the unpardonable sin or whatever. So, Or if they come oh, from an Armenian background and you can lose your faith, lose your salvation, as my friend John Hanna would say, I can never be Armenian. On a good day, I'm, maybe I'm saved. On a bad day, not so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But this so, is, boy, yeah, in so, isolation, it's hard. Yeah, so a couple of things here. Good. Yeah, so first of all, we need to understand that the author is not primarily teaching theology here. Theology is underneath. It's the foundation of what's going on, but he is challenging them using word pictures and imagery that actually comes from the wilderness wanderings in the Old Testament. That's the first thing to say. A guy named Dave Matthewson has written a very good article showing that the language in this passage comes right out of the wilderness wandering passages of the Old Testament. So that they tasted the heavenly gift is an allusion to the manna, manna right. in the wilderness. That they were enlightened is an allusion to the pillar of fire. The same verb is used of the pillar lighting the way of the children in the wilderness. So the imagery that he's evoking here, and he's actually applying that imagery to people who have left the church, is they are people who had experienced the things of God and been associated with them. But if you look at the broader context of Hebrews, for instance, at the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the wilderness wanderers from the author of Hebrews standpoint are people who have seen all of this stuff go on and experienced it but they haven't added faith to their hearing of the Word of God. And so the language of wilderness wandering here is really, really important. These are phenomena that are surrounding these people who have left the church. 
that they have seen the miracles, they have been associated with the works of the Holy Spirit and all of these kind of things, and yet they have walked away, and they've not only walked away, this is not just kind of a casual drifting, they have actually joined those who are standing over against the cross and saying, Jesus, you have nothing to do with me. You're just a Jewish guy who died on a cross. They've trampled under their feet the Son of God treated his blood as if it is common, not fit for sacrifice. This Mm. is chapter 10, verses Mm -hmm. 26 and following. So here's the situation I think he's describing, and then we'll talk a little bit about the implications of it. But I think what he's describing is people who have, they have been involved in the church. They've actually been people who have repented publicly. They are people who have been involved in seeing the miraculous work of God, hearing the word of God, and that kind of thing. And yet, they've come to a place where they have been able to walk away and say, I have nothing to do with this. I have nothing to do with this guy who died on the cross. I don't believe that his blood has anything to do with me. And I think what the author of Hebrews is saying is that kind of person is manifesting something that is terrifying spiritually. It's terrifying. And we've all known those kind of people. When I first was going to be writing the NIV application commentary for Hebrews, when I sat down with the editor at Zondervan for the first time for lunch, a beautiful, lovely guy named Jack Kohacek, who dreamed up the NIV application commentary series, and he was basically talking to me about doing the the Hebrews volume, and when I agreed to it, he said, you know, the one thing I want to find out is how you're going to deal with chapter six, (laughs) because my dad you know, he made a commitment to Christ in middle age and burned the candles at both ends for two years in the church and then suddenly walked away with no explanations. He wouldn't tell any of us why, but he turned his back on the church, turned his back on the faith. And he said, I want to know, is it possible for him to come back? Wow. Because of this word that says it's impossible to renew to repentance. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a very complex passage, and we don't have time to go into all the fine details, but let me tell you my understanding. There are about seven different positions on this passage. Here's my understanding. My understanding is that what the author is speaking of is these people who have made a decision to walk away from Christianity, to deny Christ, they've turned their back, and what they are manifesting is that they do not have salvation. Can I inject a point here? You said this is primarily written to Rome. That's your yeah. take. Do you think these were the disparate? Oh, these were Jews primarily, Jewish Christians, or was this a broader audience? I think it was a broader audience okay. than that. All right, keep going then. The I think the church was mixed. One view is that, you know, this was written basically to Jews who had not yet received the gospel, that kind of thing. I don't think so. I think these well, are people. Yeah, who, who you were, have our time grammatically with once enlightened, tasted, and again, the yeah. allusion to Exodus is impossible to miss. Yeah. So I'm right. sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to clarify that no, no, because no, that's, that's one of the watersheds of some of the different. Absolutely. Okay, so keep going. Yeah. So part of what I think he's he's doing here is he's saying, look, as mysterious as it is, there are people who have kind of, quote, been one of us and yet come to a point in their lives and they manifest that they did not have what the Bible would say is real salvation. Salvation, biblically and in the New Testament, has a past, a present, and a future. In fact, when Hebrews talks about salvation in 928, he says Christ will bring salvation with him at the end of the age. J.I. Packer says that, you know, in the past we were saved from the penalty of sin, justification. In the present, we are being saved from the power of sin, 
And in the future, we will be saved from the presence of sin in the Mm -hmm. resurrection. So the way I say it to my students is that salvation is a package deal. There's a whole enchilada plate, if I can say it that way. It has a past, a present, a future. If you can walk away from the faith and say to Jesus, you have nothing to do with me, then you are manifesting that you do not have the reality of full-orbed you know, salvation. I'm not saying I'm reformish in my theology. I'm not saying a person can lose salvation. I'm saying that they are manifesting that they did not have it. As much as they repented publicly and maybe were baptized and have been involved in the church for years and spoken the language, if a person can come to the place where they deny Jesus— they are manifesting something about themselves that is terrifying. Now, the other side of this coin from a ministry standpoint is when someone comes to me and they say, oh, I want to know Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to be faithful, and I am trusting him for my salvation, but I'm afraid I may have committed impardonable sin, and Hebrews is talking about that. I can easily say to that person, this passage is not dealing with you. This passage is not talking about you. Because I can't look into that person's heart and life, but I can say that they seem to be committed to Jesus and committed to the gospel and trusting him for their salvation. And that's not the group Hebrews is concerned with here. He's concerned with people who've turned their back and say, I have nothing to do and want nothing to do with Christianity. So to make a statement that you know our, our broadest audience could understand, and yeah. I like to differentiate salvation and sanctification. The salvation is typically a moment in time or some period of time. Maybe it's a process, but there's a, a benchmark when I walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, I trusted Christ that he lived, died, was buried, came back from the dead. Any yeah. and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and yes. begin a new relationship with Christ. Boom. Now, that message can be as clear as day, and a person may not have embraced it by faith and yeah. entrusted it, but they may be sort of dabbling around the edges. Otherwise, we're into Armenianism. We're into, you can lose your salvation. I think back to your friend's example of his father, you know, heartbreaking is impossible to renew to repentance. And I think it was J.J. Pentecost who said, he used the phrase, you can't go back, so you have to go on. Meaning, you can't go back and do something Christ did. There's no way to renew the repentant work that you think you need to do because if you fell away, and again, we get to this complicated language here, but to walk away from it, and you probably, like me, have friends. I have a young man I discipled for two years and changed, and he walked away from it all, doesn't believe any of it, has become a Bart Ehrman fan, and I have to console myself with, he never trusted Christ, or he's very deceived and very deluded. Well, and I think posture is important here. So the way that Hebrews would say what you just described about, you know, when we come to this moment where we accept Christ and believe the gospel, that's entering the new covenant. You know, so we okay. when we enter the new covenant with Christ, actually what Hebrews says in chapter 10, 14, if I'm remembering the right verse, is that Christ has perfected for all time those who are being saved. So if I really do enter into the new covenant, then my sins, past, present, and future, have already been decisively dealt with. Mm -hmm. And so what I was talking about is that a person in some mysterious way can manifest that they are not really in the new covenant. You know, that may be manifested in a person walking away. 
ministry-wise, we can't look at a person, and that's another important backdrop for dealing with the warning passages, is, you know, people want to sort out and say, well, are these people sincere believers? Are they not believe? You know, all this different kind of thing. Carnal, carnal Christians. Yeah, the author is dealing with a spectrum of people in his audience across a spiritual spectrum. There are people in there who are king Christians all the way to those who have one foot out the door. And you can't look in people's hearts and know exactly where people are coming from. I can't tell you with someone sitting in the congregation, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that this person is really saved. You know, they're a part of the new covenant. And I also can't see a person who is backslidden, if we can use that terminology, and say, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that person's not a believer, because we can't look into the human heart. So what we have to do ministry-wise is we minister the gospel to people wherever they are, right? Yes. So if somebody has walked away from the faith, I challenge them to believe the gospel and want them to come to a place of repentance, you know, and to believe the gospel. If someone is struggling in the faith and they come to me and they say, I'm really struggling and I'm not sure if I'm really saved or not, then my word to them is believe the gospel, trust Christ, you know, not your action that you took 15 years ago, but believe Mm -hmm. now, trust Mm -hmm. him now, you know, that kind of thing. So I think it's bringing people to the gospel, which is exactly what the author of Hebrews is trying to do is to get people to see Jesus more clearly and the gospel more clearly. Well, and we can parallel this with almost each of the warning passages, but from a, you bring up the church or ministerial or, you know, applicational practical point of view, I use the illustration of if that person is living in sin, they either have not come to Christ or they are willfully disobeying. And in either situation, I'm praying that they understand the gospel, and if they're living in sin, that they repent and come back to their walk with Christ. If they're not believers, that they get clarity on the gospel. So the outcomes of these passages, as much as we are disturbed by them, are really not that different. Right. Uh, That's absolutely right. From a a ministry standpoint. Go ahead. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's what I've actually said for. I have, you know, other New Testament scholar friends who are more from an Arminian standpoint. And the reality is our ministry to a person in this position actually ends up looking fairly similar right? Right. <laughs> how we're trying to approach the person. But let me say one final thing, and then we can just kind of transition from the warnings if you want to. But, and that is, this is very complex. That's why you've had so much debate around it. I was teaching in China years ago, and uh, there was this big, tall Chinese brother who was sitting down front, fairly young guy. I think he was in his early 30s or whatever. And he asked a question during a question and answer time. So what does Hebrews 6 mean? And I gave a kind of an elaborate, you know, explanation of different positions and the grammar and all this kind of stuff. And, I see it coming. And went on and on for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes and got to the end of it. And he smiled and said, okay, so, so what does Hebrew what does it mean? mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. And everybody just laughed, you know. Right. So it's not easy. It's complex. That's why there's so much debate about it. But here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. The author of Hebrews is challenging us to really do what Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. You know, take this really seriously because the implications are huge in terms of how you end up responding to Jesus and the gospel. They're eternal. Don't take it lightly. And that's really kind of the bottom line here. All right, let's get, you've got students and you got young people around you, George. A lot of us, well, let's just say I do. I sin willfully. Yeah. The sin of omission is, that's just a cheap piece of theology. (laughs) 
yeah. <laughs> in my worldview. Yeah. No, my sin's willful. I choose to sin. So yeah. the Christian who's maybe where I am, who's candid enough to say, yeah, I choose to sin sometimes. And I know I shouldn't do it. And what do you say to them? Because we read these sinning willfully. I go, oh, I would say all my sins are willful, George. Yeah. So what you're alluding to there is in chapter 10, you know, when he, when he talks about, you know, in verse 26 of chapter 10, for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving a knowledge of truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Yeah. So let me give a context of that. Basically, he's talking about something in the old covenant called sinning with a high hand. And what that was, was it was tantamount to a rejection of the covenant. It's where somebody comes to a place and they say, yeah, I understand that the law says all these things and I'm simply not going to do them. You know, so it's someone who has turned their back on the covenant. So this is not the kind of willful sinning that you were talking about just a minute ago that's saying, you know, that we all, of course, we all sin and we choose to do things that are wrong and hurt other people and hurt us and et cetera. But the language here is actually referring to those people who we've already been talking about who have walked away from the faith. And this is why he says there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. It goes back up to verse 18 in the same chapter where he says, now where there's forgiveness of these things, there's no longer an offering for sin. So here's what he's saying in essence. If you turn your back on the new covenant, on the salvation that is offered through Jesus, by which all of our sins have been decisively forgiven. All of the old covenant sacrifices have been done away with because they've all been satisfied in the one sacrifice of Christ that never has to be repeated. If you turn your back on that, there's no place to go for forgiveness. Let's just say that some of these people perhaps were being tempted to go back and, you know, join back in with the broader mainline Judaism or something like that. And perhaps they were thinking they would go back to a pagan context. Some of them, you know, where you had sacrifices as well. The author is saying, look, the sacrifice of Christ has done away with any other sacrifice. There's no other way to come before God except through the salvation offered by Christ. That's what he's talking about when he says, go on sinning deliberately. That means turning your back on the covenant. And it's actually unpacked here in the following verses, as we've already mentioned well, with and, and trampling that, with the son of God, you know, treating his blood as, as something that is unclean, common. Yeah. And that's, and that was, again, where Pentecost summarized and said, you can't go back. So you have to go forward. And you can just use that specifically to the Jewish audience argument, or you could also use it to those that are sort of, I call migratory pattern Christians. They're in the middle of all this in, you know, whatever the church was at, let's say Rome, and they're confused about all kinds of issues. But at the heart of hearts, a Christian, he or she knows when they sin, they're guilty. They're convicted either by conscience or the Holy Spirit or both, and they have a response. And so when we read these passages, was it Alexander White that said, the closer he had, it was almost a limerick rhyme, but the closer to Christ I walk, the more of my sin I see, something like that. And I often yeah. wonder as we age in Christ, and I mean mature, not just get older, you're more keen, hopefully. Yes. And I tell people, I don't act out my sins. My sins are all between my temples and under the yeah. ribcage of my chest. 
That's where yeah. my sin lives and dwells. I don't act out on those things as I did once. And so knowing that, your conscience becomes, you know, hopefully tender and right. you're walking close to God's spirit. So to me, if these verses for a person reading them really upset them, I would say there's that's goodness in a way. Because yeah. you're asking the question, well, Lord, do I need to confess here? And do I know that I know that I know? I never think it's a waste of time to, you mentioned, examine yourself to see for in the faith. I never think it's a waste of time to review the benchmark. When did I come to Christ? What did yeah. I actually believe? And of course, what we don't want to do is to read that passage in 1026 as saying that the bar is so high, nobody will ever be able to attain to this. Right. You know, that somehow there's sinless perfection expected of believers. And that's not what Hebrews is saying. You know, Hebrews is not saying that if you continue to struggle with sin and even in choose to sin, then there's no hope for you. I mean, that's in a sense, the opposite of what Hebrews is saying, because if you look at the high priestly Christology, this is the only book of the new Testament that deals with Jesus as high priest. Yes. And five, one through 10, and then seven, one through 28 are all about the appointment of Jesus as high priest. And he's a superior high priest because unlike those old covenant priests, he's not going to die on you. You know, he's not going anywhere. He always lives to make intercession for us. And his eternal life is a superior form of priesthood. And then, so he's appointed as the superior priest. And then his superior offering in chapters 8 through 10, 18 is superior because it's made in the heavenly, you know, he actually takes it right into the presence of the Father in heaven. It is made with his own blood, not the blood of animals, and it is made once for all time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I tell my students, look, if you ever get your head around how decisive the sacrifice of Christ is for your sins, it'll change your life. It will. You know, that you understand how decisively Christ has dealt with sin. It just changes us. And so what the author is actually doing is saying that in the new covenant, he's playing off of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, when God says, I will remember their sins no more. It means that if you are in the new covenant, that God has so decisively dealt with your sins through the person of Christ, that you do not have to worry about whether or not you have the right to come into the presence of God. Mm. You can come in because of, of what Christ has accomplished for us. I love your uh, reminder that this is the only book to deal with Christ as the high priest. And I also love the references, the cadence he uses about draw near, draw near, yeah. draw yeah. near. Which is priestly language, by the way. This is oh. this is language used in Leviticus yep. 8 and 9, for instance. Yep. The priest drawing near in the tabernacle. Which, you know? which no one else could do. And now we've got this greater than angel intermediary who is the eternally existent one. And yeah, the allusions and references to the Levitical order are in themselves. We're running way out of time, but I want you to, because it's such a, this is a remarkable book, but I want you to talk a little bit about 11, because we often talk about the hall of faith and with your study, you've got to have some insights and uh, things that you'd love to share about this great chapter 11 and 12, probably. Sure. Yeah. So just very briefly, what Hebrews 11 is, is what is called an example list in the ancient world. And this was something else that the rabbis use, but it's also used in the broader culture a bit. And here's how an example list worked. This is, you know, in terms of people who were trained in public speaking, they would use this kind of 
example is to make a point. And of course, in Hebrews 11, we have uh, the repetition of by faith, yep. by faith, by faith. And you have a real pattern going there. And the the force of an example list is you get to the end of the example list. And again, everybody in the room is nodding their head and going, okay, I got it. I got it. This is the right way to live for God, you know, because you have example after example after example. And the author is walking us through Old Testament history and saying, right ways to approach God is to respond to him by trusting him. Now, I think one of the important things to say is faith biblically is not a leap in the dark. Right. We in, a, in the modern world, because of the philosophy called existentialism, have received a broader cultural understanding of faith as turning your back on the facts and leaping into the dark. It's right. kind of, you remember right. that Indiana Jones movie where yep. standing over the precipice and the clue is, you know, he who leaps from the lion's head. And so he's saying faith means I step off into nothing. And that's a very modern conception of faith. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is not a leap in the dark. It is a step into the light. It is stepping out on what God has revealed is true and trusting him on the basis of what God has revealed is true. Now, it's still, we're dealing with the unseen God. We're dealing with things that haven't happened in our lives yet when we're trusting him for our future. But still, it is stepping out on trust of the God who has revealed his own character. So that's a big, important part of what Hebrews 11 is dealing with. And it's interesting to think about that chapter because just as a couple of examples, you don't have any examples of healing in that chapter. Mm -hmm. We tend to think of faith. We live in a world where we're desperate for health, and rightly so. I'm so glad for you know, that and that God does heal people. So I'm thankful for that. But it's interesting that Hebrews doesn't have that as the foot forward. And also notice that those people who are commended for faith, for some of them, they get their answers and some of them don't. In fact, when you get down to the end of the chapters, in the end of the chapter, some of the people, the result of their faith is that they're raised from the dead and they conquer armies and, you know, those kind of things. Other people who are people of faith, who are commended for their faith, get sawn in half, yep. live in yep. caves, are driven from the face of the earth, you know, that kind of thing. So what is celebrated in Hebrews 11 is a posture of trust in God that God uses to advance his cause in the world in the face of tremendous difficulty. And that is what is being affirmed. And of course, that then becomes the example for these people who were the first audience of Hebrews because they are getting beaten up by the culture. And he's challenging them to follow the exemplars, the examples of the Old Testament as they too are being marginalized, as they too are being beaten up. And he's saying, look, if you are in the place where you're continuing to walk with God toward the heavenly city and you're being faithful, then God is saying, well done. And, you know, mm -hmm. celebrating that. You talk about the cadence of by faith, by faith, by faith. I think the theme is not as prominent, but the theme of enduring throughout this whole section, whether you take any one of them, what they endured by faith. I love yeah. the little parentheses, the way most of our English translations render it. Verse 38, men of whom the world was not worthy. Yeah, yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that. And, and then he goes on to say, all these having gained, past tense, approval. 
yeah. through their faith did yeah. not receive what was promised because God had provided something better. And I think, boy, what a recalibration for our Christian Western mindset today, how we seek approval. Absolutely. We seek approval from so many bad yeah. sources and some good sources. Yeah. No, yeah. It's actually living with a posture of being profoundly oriented to God. It kind of goes back to what we talked about some with Second Corinthians, that Paul lived with God as the audience of one, you know, the one person that was his primary audience that he was oriented to. And that's a very similar idea here that, you know, we endure by keeping our focus where it needs to be. It is a dual look in Hebrews, actually. It's looking at Jesus in his endurance. So that's exactly where he goes in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's looking to Jesus in his perseverance, his endurance in the incarnation, all the way to the point of death on the cross. And it's taking the dual look. It's not only looking at Jesus in his incarnation, it's looking at Jesus in his exaltation and seeing the outcome of endurance, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is exalted as Lord of the universe. He is the one we serve. And these bad forces around us are not going to win. They're not going to win. Jesus is Lord of the universe. He's the real Lord. But between the time of the cross and the second coming, we still have a lot of enemies that beat the church up and make it difficult to live in the world. But endurance means that we, we follow Jesus. We get a clear picture of who Jesus is, both in his incarnational suffering and in his exaltation. And that actually gives us a, a superior basis for hanging in there. This is Dr. George Guthrie. George, you should write a commentary on Hebrews, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> he has authored uh, the NIV application notes to the study Bible. He's written Hebrews and James Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary. On and on it goes. Again, our show notes will take you to links where Dr. Guthrie has a host of resources, the structure of Hebrew at text linguistic analysis on and on it goes george thanks for your heart for a study and your discipline and your rigors to do what you do so you can help people like us to understand this living book well thanks michael great to be with you guys again really appreciate you having me on appreciate your time blessings did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.